Today we're entering the fourth week of our journey through this wisdom book. And uh, as you turn there, just remember with me as, as Larry began our series, he described much of Ecclesiastes as the view from the road, as opposed to viewing things from, from up above. You look down from above and there, there's beauty and there's serenity. Roads and population clusters, they make sense. But when you get down on the road, you're dealing with traffic and inconveniences and all sorts of problems. Ecclesiastes gets us well acquainted with this view from the road. And last week, Larry laid out for us, the preacher, Kohelet, his search for meaning. He searched for it in wisdom. He searched for it in pleasure and self-indulgence, in folly and in toil. And at the end, regardless of where you pursue meaning and significance, everybody dies. Larry said, death renders everything meaningless. So what is the point, is what the preacher asked. We saw at the end of our passage from last week how recognizing God in the picture changes the futility, changes the vanity, changes the meaninglessness of our earthly experience. But then the preacher ends with a view under the sun. Look at the final words of Ecclesiastes 2 there. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. And this brings us to Ecclesiastes 3. So would you read the Word of God with me, beginning in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. We're going to read through to verse 15. This is the Word of God. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we come before your word, desiring to learn more of you, to know more of you, so that our lives might be conformed to you. May we walk in the fear of God in all we do and say, and may your word penetrate our hearts this morning as we look to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 During the lighting of the National Christmas Tree 
in December of 1964, which is ancient history to me, to some of you, it's real life. <laughs> President Lyndon B. Johnson made this declaration. This is what he said. These are the most hopeful times in all the years since Christ was born in Bethlehem. Today, as never before, man has in his possession the capacities to end war and preserve peace, to eradicate poverty and share abundance, to overcome the diseases that have afflicted the human race and permit all mankind to enjoy their promise in life on this earth. However, by that next summer, Johnson's ambitious optimism, it was, it was waning. There was reason for it to wane. The next three months... After Johnson made these statements, they saw bombs dropped on North Vietnam. They saw com the first combat troops arrive in Vietnam. LSD and the pill became widely available. These months saw the assassination of Malcolm X and the march from Selma to Montgomery. These months were peppered by civil rights and anti-war protests that bellied tremendous unrest in American society. Now, in Johnson's words at the dawn of 65, there was a declaration of hope an achievement. Look at all that we can do. Look at the hope we have. Look at the control we have over our future. But within days of this declaration, it was shown to be meaningless. It was shown to be vanity. Now, nowhere is this really more clearly seen than when we look to the music of 1965. Just in the summer of that year, so with June and July, August of that year, listen to the message of some of the songs that became number, all of these became number one hits at some point. Uh, Barry McGuire prophesied that we're on the eve of destruction. John Lennon cried out for help. Mick Jagger declared that he can't get no satisfaction. Jagger declared that the, the world around me, it promises happiness if I get this or have that, but still, I can't get no satisfaction. Bob Dylan cynically reflected on what it's like to lose significance and meaning, asking the question, how does it feel? How does it feel to be without a home like a complete unknown, like a rolling stone? And Paul Simon, he penned these words. He says, Through the corridors of sleep, past the shadows dark and deep, my mind dances and leaps in confusion. I don't know what is real. I can't touch what I feel. And I hide behind the shield of my illusion. So I'll continue to continue to pretend. My life will never end, and flowers never bend with the rainfall. He goes on to write, It's no matter if you're born to play the king or pawn, for the line is thinly drawn between joy and sorrow. So my fantasy becomes reality, and I must be what I must be and face tomorrow. So I'll continue to continue to pretend that my life will never end, and flowers never bend with the rainfall. The music of the summer of 65, it was remarkably honest and it reflects in large part what we come across in this book of Ecclesiastes. And this brings us to our first point this morning. And first we're going to look at two truths, and we're going to look at two responses. So truth number one, time tyrannizes us. Time tyrannizes us. Time and change. Promise of hope and fulfillment, followed by failure. They, they tyrannize us. And that's what so many of these songs expressed. So we look for explanation and we look for escape. We search for meaning and significance. Uh, we, may not, we may acknowledge this tyranny in one breath, but then we try to declare that we have some control over it in the next. So we continue to continue to pretend that our life will never end. 
Now perhaps that's why in the summer of this same year, 1965, the Birds recorded and released a song originally written by Pete Seeger, actually originally written by God because it contains the words from Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 8, word for word. Turn, turn, turn. It became the number one song in December of that year. The song and this text, they express the tyranny of time. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now that everything there, that everything we see in verse 1, do you know what that includes? Everything. Everything. The good and the bad. They have a season. Notice also that there is a time for every matter under heaven. And that also means exactly what it says. There's a time for every matter under heaven. Verse 1, it functions as the preacher's thesis statement for this poem, which we come across in verses 2 through 8. Now let's notice a few things about this poem. First, it clearly focuses on this word time. Time is used 28 times in these seven verses. This focus on time, is, it's not something that we exercise great control of either. The list begins with there's a time to be born and a time to die. And this highlights something we have no control over whatsoever. None of us had anything to do with when we came into this world. And only the Lord knows when we will go out of it. Birth and death, they mark our beginning and our end. And the rest of the poem proceeds to describe kind of everything between those times. This is a poem that describes time under the sun. It's about life, life in a fallen world. Now second, notice this poem, it contains 14 pairs of times, 14 pluses and 14 minuses. And someone once said that these 14 pluses and 14 minuses, they don't add up to much of anything. Sidney Gradanus, a commentator of Ecclesiastes, he states it this way. He says, did you notice how one time cancels out another? A time to be born and a time to die. Nothing left. A time to plant our flowers in the spring and a time to pluck them up in the fall. Nothing gained. A time to break down and a time to build up. Nothing changed. What gain have the workers from their toil? Absolutely nothing. Now while this this poem ends with the word peace, there's a time for peace, it leaves us with no assurance of peace. This poem is very similar to what we read in chapter 1 when the preacher talks about the cycle of nature. Look over, flip over a page to chapter 1, verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the winds return. And he goes on from there. Such is life. Around and around we go. We are born and we die. We plant only to gather up what is planted. We break things down, we blow up buildings, and we build things up again, put a building in its place. We laugh and we cry, we dance and we mourn. Around and around we go, all that happens, happens again. So what's the point? We, we still can't get no satisfaction. We may try and try, but we can't. Generation after generation, it seeks to pronounce that we have power and control over our times, like Lyndon Johnson declared in December of 64. We, we put hope as if we can do something. In 1971, John Lennon held out this vision. 
He said, just imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Just imagine. We, we can get there. But then in 1985, there was need for this song that Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie wrote. We are the ones who make a brighter day, so let's start giving. There's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's true we'll make a better day, just you and me. Now it's 2017, and as far as I can tell, we really haven't made much progress on this grand vision. There's still unrest. There's still no world peace. People still die from hunger. There's still racism. People still are killed for unjust reasons. And we can't make all these times that we live in just go away. We don't have that kind of control and we don't have that kind of power. This is the great tyranny of time. All these things happen and life goes on. We like to think that we have some significance in and of ourselves, that that we really matter, that people will remember us after we're gone. But for most, if not all of us in this room, a generation will come and a generation will go and we will be forgotten. Our great-grandkids may not even know our names. Our great-grandkids may not even know our names. Now this leads us to the preacher's question in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? If all that we do will be done again, if we make money and other, others will someday squander it, if we get stuff only to leave it behind when we die, when we seek only because we've lost, when we try to keep only because we've cast other things away, if we fight for peace only to see a time of war, what is the point? What gain do we have from all our toil? What gain do we have from this time that we have to live life within? Now this brings us to our second point, truth number two. God is sovereign over time. God is sovereign over time. While the poem we've just looked at depicts time from under the sun or life from the road, here in verse 10 we break above the clouds to view time from above, to view time from God's perspective. In these first nine verses, there is no mention of God as time exercises its tyranny over us. Then, in verses 10 through 15, God is mentioned eight times. One commentator writes that here, the camera shifts to God. Now we see something of what God sees. Here, we catch a glimpse of the sovereignty of God over time. God is the one who is in control of time. He's in control of every season, of every circumstance, of every matter that we face. And that is what the preacher seeks to highlight. Now think with me of a large tapestry. And when you look at it from from below, it's nothing but threads and knots. But when we view it from above, we can see this great and beautiful image that, that makes sense. This is like God's view of time. The preacher begins answering his question from verse 9 by saying in verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen what he has given us to do. All the times mentioned in the poem, the goings and the comings, the births and the deaths, all the times, they've been given by God. And they are his to give. The psalmist writes in Psalm 74, verses 16 and 17, he says, Yours is the day, yours also the night. 
You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. This is the God who has given us the business of our life to be busy with. His is the day. His is the night. And He has made everything beautiful in its time, as verse 11 says. Now this can be understood as everything being suitable for its time. In God's sovereignty, what happens always happens when it's supposed to happen. What happens always happens when it is supposed to happen. As bewildering as the reality of our lives can seem at times. What happens always happens when it is supposed to happen. Everything takes place at the right time. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And in a sense, this is, this is one of the overarching themes of Scripture. God, who is sovereign over time, works in time to accomplish His purposes. Paul writes in Galatians 4, verse 3, that we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. We were confined to, to these times, to life under the sun. This is like that tyranny of time. We are without hope and without purpose. But listen to what Paul says next. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. At the right time, God sent His Son. And this Son, Jesus, at the outset of His ministry, we read in Mark 1, He says this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Then in His ministry, as the Jews seek to kill Jesus, He tells His disciples in John 7, 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And then the Jews actively seek to arrest Him, in John 7.30, we read that no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Then finally, when his hour comes, Paul writes about this hour in Romans 5.6 that, that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God is the God over time, and he indeed has made everything beautiful in its time. Then next in Ecclesiastes 3.11, we see that also, He has put eternity into man's hearts. We all have a sense that is part of our very nature, that there is there's more to life. Now, now, the modern mind, they seek to deny this truth. We think we can suppress the reality of an eternal God behind and over the times, but as much as we may try to cast this idea as irrational, there's no denying it. Think about your, your home insurance. If a storm came through and took the roof off of your house, your insurance company would describe this as an act of God. It was an act of God. And this is to highlight events that they're outside of our, our human control, implying that we have control over everything else, which is kind of crazy. But nonetheless, that storm, it was an act of God. And it's this explanation that, that many people who would otherwise, otherwise deny the sovereign rule of God, they... They use this explanation to try to make sense of the world around us and the goings-on of it. This is what we see Paul write about in Romans 1. God has made plain that He exists, that He rules and He reigns, but humanity exchanges a truth for a lie, and they suppress the truth. So great is man's suppression of this reality that the, the modern man would rather believe that we are just the result of some cosmic accident 
then acknowledge that there is a God above all and ruling all. We know there must be something more, so we search for answers, but we suppress the very answer to our every question. We search for answers because He has put eternity into man's heart. The preacher goes on in verse 11, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Think about your day as a pixel, one pixel. I, in my pocket right now, I've got my iPhone, and that iPhone has two million of these pixels. Now, each pixel is made up of just one color. And if you focus in on that one pixel, all you see is this one color. Now imagine being one of these pixels. You know that there's something more. But you only represent this one color of this one image on the screen. That's all you can really understand. Just kind of right there. That's all you got. But you know there's something more. That's what our lives are like. We are but a pixel in God's great design. We know there is this great design. There is purpose and meaning and a God behind all the times and seasons. But we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Derek Kidner describes it this way. He says, We are like the desperately nearsighted, inching their way along some great tapestry or fresco in the attempt to take it in. We see enough to recognize something of its quality, but the grand design escapes us. For we can never stand back far enough to view it as its creator does, whole and entire, from the beginning to the end. We are too close to time. We are bound by time to have any real perspective on the times within which we live. But God, God has that perspective. He knows the entirety from beginning to end. So know the sovereign God over time. One commentator states that this verse, 3.11, is one of the most astounding statements about God's sovereignty in Scripture. And we pass by it all too easily. Our experience of our days and times, they must be shaped by this reality. So we, we have to pause and reflect on God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over everything. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 46 and hold your place in Ecclesiastes. We'll be coming back. In Isaiah 46, we hear the words of God. He's describing that He is the only true God. Isaiah 46, verse 8, he says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. From ancient times God has declared things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. So that God in his sovereignty, he, he can call a bird of prey from one place, and he also can control those people that are outside of his people. Calls the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. There is no doubt with God and the plans of God. He controls everything. This is what the preacher describes in 3 verse 14, that, that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. Our God's plans, they never fail. 
He does not have any abandoned projects, nor does he have any forgotten people. Think about that for you today. Wherever you are and whatever you face, God doesn't have any abandoned projects, nor does he have any forgotten people. All that he has set forth in the times of this world, it happens. Not even the sparrow falls to the ground outside of the sovereign prerogative of God. Jesus teaches this this truth on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6.26, he calls his listeners to look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now, if you had doubts about how much the, the all and the everything concerning God's sovereignty counted for, doubt no longer. Brothers and sisters, He is the sovereign God. And He knows all, and He rules all, and He determines all. So how do we respond to recognizing His great sovereignty? And this gets at the heart of what I want to say this morning, what I think God wants to say to us this morning. Knowing the sovereign God frees us to trust and tremble. Knowing the sovereign God frees us to trust and tremble. You see, we still live life under the sun. And time still exercises its tyranny over us. We are still unable to comprehend the beginning from the end. But the preacher, he calls us to respond in two ways. So now we're going to look at two responses that we are called to. Response number one, be happy and holy. We see this in verse 12 and 13. Be happy and holy. Look at those verses. Verse 12. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. When we recognize the sovereignty of God over every time and every matter under heaven, our perspective on all that we do, it changes. Since He is the one that exercises sovereign control, then we can be joyful, not anxious. We can be grateful, not full of fear. Jesus tells us in that same passage in Matthew 6, He says, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He has put eternity into the hearts of men. While we spend our days within this this one pixel, we can know that our lives are a part of the grand design of a good God. We don't have to walk just continuing to continue to pretend that our lives will never end because we know, in fact, that our lives will never end. We have eternal significance when we put our faith in God. So we take that that one pixel of our life or just our day tomorrow and, and we are to be joyful and to do good as the preacher calls us to. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Walk in obedience and faith. Be holy. And all these things, they will be added to you. The God over the times and the seasons and the matters under heaven, He is sovereign over what you eat and what you drink. And this is the business that God has given man to be busy with. And it is His good gift. Our God is not a petulant or or a contentious ruler, but a gift-giving Father. Therefore, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
So what makes you different driving to work tomorrow or getting out of bed and taking care of the kids or going to work or whatever it is than someone else, than your neighbor? You both will drive the same roads. You'll both sit in the same traffic. You'll both go to the job that some days you like, some days not so much. What makes you different? Well, when you trust in the sovereign God, when you put your faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you, you can trust His good plans for your life. He is a God who will not leave you, nor will He forsake you. He is a God that now gives, infuses significance to that drive into work tomorrow. He infuses significance into the meal that you share this afternoon because it is an expression of His love for us. It is His good gift to us. Just think about food, for instance. So you're going to go home and eat lunch. Now, God could have designed the world in such a way that we couldn't taste at all. No taste. It would be like eating paper. And that could be how we get sustenance. But that's not what God did. And instead of just giving us ten flavors to enjoy, He's given us limitless flavors to enjoy. And these things, they they put on display the glory and the goodness of our God. So now taking this, whatever it is, having this steak or eating this salad, now it's an expression of the glory of God. It's a foretaste of all that we will experience as we know the one who is goodness itself, as we know God, the chief good. So don't be anxious about what you face. You can trust this God. You can trust the sovereign one who is the God over every season, who is the God over every time. And he has given us the business of our lives to be busy with. So don't be anxious about tomorrow. The hymn writer says it this way, let not your heart be troubled. His tender word I hear. And resting on his goodness, I lose my doubts and fears. Though by the path he leadeth, but one step I may see. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Whenever I am tempted, whenever clouds arise, when song gives place to sighing, when hope within me dies, I draw the closer to him. From care he sets me free. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Brothers and sisters, take your day, today, as God's gift to man. Because that's what it is. And His is the, the ever-watching eye that determines your days and your seasons. So be joyful. Be joyful and do good. Trust in the sovereign God who reigns over all. So that's our first response, to be happy and holy. To be joyful and to do good. Our second response in verse 14 and 15, response number two, fear God. Fear God. Our second response in this life is to fear God. And this is really the the intent of the preacher in this passage. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Now what does, this, what does this mean? The preacher highlights that God is so far above and beyond us that we must stand in awe of Him. Now, some try to minimize this idea of fear. 
Some people will stay away from this idea of fear altogether when it comes to God. And we, we can be uncomfortable with this. How can this good father be someone that I should fear, a God I should fear? But look at what Scripture highlights. Jesus himself says, he says this, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, who do you think he's talking about here? He's talking about himself. Fear him. Remember when Jesus is on a boat with his disciples? He sleeps soundly as they go across the sea. And a storm comes. And he sleeps. He's still sleeping. And the disciples, out of fear for their lives, they come to him. They come to wake him. And Jesus gets up and speaks to the raging waves and wind and says, Peace, be still. And the waves and the wind, they listen to him. Mark 4 says that the wind ceased and there was great calm. Like that. The wind ceased and there was great calm. Then in verse 40, Jesus says to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Have you still no faith in the God who is with you? And how do the disciples respond to this awesome display of power? Are they just comforted? Does a smile creep across their faces as they realize the the power of the guy they're walking around with? No. No, Mark writes that they were filled with great fear. They recognized just who Jesus is. They recognized His great power and His sovereign control over even the weather. So they feared God. You know, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he could have left it at God's sovereignty, just being God's gift to man. But he doesn't stop there. God's sovereign rule over all things, it necessitates reverence and awe on our part. He is God, and there is none like Him. Ecclesiastes 3.15, it says, That which is, already has been. God has in the past determined what happens now. And that which is to be, already has been. That which is to come, God has already determined in the past. The past, the present, the future, they're all bound up in God. And we cannot fathom the world outside of time, but God, He's beyond time. He is the God over time. His plans and actions, they endure forever. They don't need any additions. They're completely sufficient. They don't need any subtractions. They are complete. God has done it so that people fear before Him. We have no claim for ourselves when we stand before this great and sovereign, awesome and infinite God. But at the right time, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. If you're here this morning and you have not turned and placed your trust in Jesus Christ, who is the one who bore your sins, who took on your shame, died the death that you deserved to die, turn to Him and trust in Him. And you can have joy everlasting in Him. Trust this great and sovereign and awesome God. George Swinnick, he writes this. He says, If God be so great a God, how greatly is He to be reverenced? Can you do too much service for Him? Or give too much glory to Him? Can your love to Him be too great? Or can your fear of Him be too great? God is great, and therefore greatly to be feared. We are to bring fear of God together with faith in God. 
And as Thomas Watson says, the godly man trembles, trembles yet trusts. We are to tremble yet trust. So brothers and sisters, as we go from here today, look to the God who's over every season. The God who designs every time for us to live. Even yesterday, even today, tomorrow. It's His grand design. He has given us a season for everything. A time for every matter under heaven. And He knows them. He knows them from beginning to end. Take comfort in verse 14. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. What God does is complete. What God does is good. So brothers and sisters, what gain has the worker from his toil? His gain, your gain, is enjoying and knowing God who is the the greatest good, the fountain of all good, the source of all delight. It's walking in the good business that He has given us to be busy with. It's taking part in the great tapestry of His design. It's finding eternal significance, not in ourselves, but in Him who hung the stars, who planned the times, who at the right time came to die for us. God is God, and we are not. So be joyful and do good, and trust in Him. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we stand in awe of You who did fling the stars into space, who spoke and there was light, who spoke and stilled the storm. We look to You and we recognize You as the Sovereign One who exercises Your sovereign prerogative over all things. And Lord, we ask that You give us grace to trust You. Trust You today and not be anxious so we trust You. Because You have given us these, the gift of our times to be busy with. Some good, some happy, some hard, some sad. But You are the God who knows them from beginning to end. So we turn to You and we, we rest in You and we hope in You. And as we sing in just a moment, Lord, we acknowledge that You are our song from age to age. Our voices unite to recount Your praise again and again. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And may Your praise be continually on our lips. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.